to have the opportunity to fellowship with you and bring God's word to you as well. Uh, It's great to see the Aaron's back looking all fresh and 10 years younger, I think. I don't know what the rest of you are thinking. But it's uh, when Pastor Kurt and I uh, had the privilege of going to the Reformed Baptist Network conference this past week. And it was just wonderful to uh, hear so much missionary endeavor that's going on in our network of churches. And that w- that's what it was all about. And it was wonderful to think that when we were finishing and sort of scattering all over the world, everybody was going back, some to churches like this, some to just small house groups in dangerous places uh, where they, they've got to be careful. And it was just interesting to think that we're just scattering to do kingdom work, San Diego, Riverside, and way further afield. Of course, one of the highlights for us, brother, was it not Thursday night going out snake hunting? Wasn't that something? Uh, we were in the Everglades and we went out to see some snakes and we saw them. Even cottonmouth, first snake we saw was a cottonmouth. Alligators, we saw them. Crocodiles, we saw them. And then we had a shock and a wonderful surprise to see, I guess you call it a, a school of manatees. Those big, huge I was going to say fish, but they're not fish. It's like, they call them sea cows. And it was just great to see God's creation and his wonderful work down there in, in South Florida. Uh, but good to be back amongst you. And I'm sure you're looking forward to Pastor Kurt getting back into harness next week as well. Uh, I'm sure he's looking forward to it. You get to the point, you think, I need to get back to preaching, don't you? That's how you start. You think, oh, this is great. I've got a wee bit of time off, do some studying. And after a while, your soul starts to get all agitated. And you're thinking, I need to preach the stuff I'm studying. I need to tell people about it. And I'm sure next week, bring a packed lunch because the sermon's going to be long. (laughs) It's just going to pour it all out on you. Well, we're going to read a passage from Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And uh, just let me mention, as, as verse 38 and 39 develop, we find Paul is preaching at Antioch in Pisidia. And as he's preaching the word, he's telling the unbelievers of that city that there is forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 39, he says, and if you believe, you'll be justified. You'll be declared righteous. And he explains that the law of Moses cannot do that for them. And we're told that in verse 42, that when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. 
I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for the salvation of the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Let's pray together once again. Our gracious God, thank you for the wonderful singing of your praise, for the reading of your word, for the prayers and supplications that we have engaged in and enjoyed. But now we ask that as your word is about to be opened up, as its truth is about to be expounded, that you'd grant the preacher the infilling and the aid of the Holy Spirit, and that those who would listen would know what it is to be gripped and captivated by the truth of God, that consciences would be bound by Scripture, that affections would be increased towards the God of Scripture, and that our wills would be motivated by truth to enable us to serve you and follow you and love you as we ought. Oh, gracious God, have mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a revival. Antioch of Poseidia has known a great move of God, a wonderful move of God. The Gentiles that were gathered around the Jewish synagogue, they heard the gospel and they heard it with enthusiasm. And they especially, a few Jews, but especially the Gentiles that had heard Paul and Barnabas preaching forgiveness of sins and justification by faith and not by the works of the law. As Paul and Barnabas are leaving, they're gathering around and they're saying, would you come back and preach this next Sabbath day? Would you be here next week? And there must have been a whole lot of talking that was going on in that city. We think of about 70,000 people. A fair-sized city for its day. In the course of that week, those Gentiles must have literally gossiped and spread the word that Paul and Barnabas had something to say that everybody needed to hear. Because the next Sabbath day... It says that it seems like the whole city turned out to hear them preach. Now, that might be a biblical hyperbole, legitimate, in order to convey to us that it was a massive crowd. It doesn't mean that everybody was there. It doesn't mean literally that we should think that the majority was there, but the crowd was huge. I'm going to say there was easily thousands and thousands of people. That's enough to say. And when Paul and Barnabas preached that next Lord's Day, there was a move of God and many believed. What a glorious account that Luke gives us of this first missionary journey. This penetration into mainland Europe, really in a sense still Asia, but heading towards Europe. We would actually speak of Antioch of Poseidia being in South Turkey today. So it's strictly speaking still Asia, but they're starting to get towards Europe as they're going. And revival has truly spread. Now look, in verse 48 tells us something that's so interesting. He's been telling us the story. But in verse 48, he gives us an insight into what lay behind this great revival. 
How come on this particular day, this move of God, so many brought into the kingdom? Listen to the explanation. Listen to the behind the scenes analysis of what really was going on. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now look could easily have just carried on with the story, but it's as if he just couldn't help himself. Indeed, it's as if the Holy Spirit just stopped him as he inspires Luke to write this account, this historical narrative, and the Spirit of God wants to explain what really was going on. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Why did so many trust in Christ that day? Well, some would say, well, it's obvious that there were many who were discerning amongst that crowd. As many as who had discerning spirits believed. That's not what it says, isn't it? No. As many as had tender hearts, while the hard-hearted and the stubborn and the, the super proud hung on to their old ways, the tender-hearted, those with soft spirits, heard the gospel and were moved. Is that what it says? As many as were disposed on that occasion who found themselves inclined to believe, believed that day. Hmm. Doesn't say that, doesn't it not? Ah, I know. As many as had a spark of spiritual life in their soul. Not that they were on fire for God, but there was a wee spark of spiritual life in the depth of their being. And when the word of God was preached, it was as if that wee spark became a little flame and the little flame grew and grew until it became a big fire and consumed them. With God's help, of course. Is that what it says? As many as who were willing to be honest with themselves and who were able to look at their life and say, you know what, I am really lonely. I am really not fulfilled. I'm really not accomplishing what I want in life. There's got to be more. And and those who were honest with themselves, they believed. That's not what it says. Here's what it says. And I know I'm repeating myself, but it's worth repeating. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Let's look at this text and delve into this little insight that Luke gives us. As he's telling the story, it's as if he says, oh, and this is why this all happened. Well, let's look at it. Let's assess the words, first of all, as many as. Who doesn't understand that? The words are actually very simple. This isn't too complicated. As many as, that literally means each one. Every single individual 
who is among the group that this verse is about to identify for us, every single one of them, with the exclusion of none, the whole group, every single one, as many as, were. Well, this is indicating that what we're about to hear is something that has happened in a day gone by, not something that has just is just occurring at the moment, but something that is in the past. Past tense. In a day gone by, as many as have been. Have been what? Well, here it is. Appointed. Appointed. The word tasso indicates an orderly arranging. The idea is of a pre-planned, established event. Now, some of you have an appointment this week. I have an appointment in about three weeks with the dentist. I think about it more than you could ever imagine. It's on my mind. Oh, the 19th of September. Oh, of October, excuse me. What has happened? I've made the phone call. And the receptionist at the other side has looked at the calendar. And she said, yep, that day's free. Just make your way down at that time, 10.15 in the morning, and the doctor will see you. We all know what an appointment is. It's something that has been arranged. It's an ordered, organized, pre-planned event that has been scheduled. This word, to appoint, is used significantly in scripture and in some important verses for example Romans 13 verse 1 a passage that many of us I'm sure do know which speaks of civil powers that have been appointed by God that is God has arranged them and brought them to be he is the one who has decreed and then he is the one who providentially has brought it about that certain people in certain places hold office Now, as we look on it, it might look kind of random. In some places, it might be that there is a ruler who has inherited his or her office. We think of perhaps North Korea with Kim Jong-un, and we realize that he inherited his dictatorship from his father, Kim Jong-il, who in turn inherited his dictatorship from his father, Kim Il-sung. And you look at that and you think, well, that's the way it is in North Korea. There's a dictator who who bullies his way into office and then passes it on to his son, who keeps his office, who passes it on to his son. But God appointed it. Just as much as he appoints, perhaps, the one who's ruling in, in some country in South America where there's been a coup. And and it seems as if there's been all kinds of chaos and out of the chaos comes a ruler. And you say, well, how did that happen? Well, there's all kinds of circumstances, but God ultimately appointed it. In the United States, we vote and we vote for a president. You see the name on the ballot. It might have been Trump or Clinton. And, and, And you look at that and you put your X beside the name of the one you want to be president and the winner becomes the president. In the United Kingdom, it's different. You don't vote for the, the, the prime minister, the leader. You vote for the party and the party appoints 
the leader who becomes the prime minister. All over the world, there's so many ways, different ways. Some seem cruel and authoritarian and horrible. Others seem more fair, at least to our minds. But at the end of the day, you take a step back from it all and you look at the big picture and you say, God is the one who decreed. God is the one who ordained. God is the one who planned. God is the one who in many different providences has brought these individuals into office. God is appointed. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 10, the apostle Paul actually uses this word as he's explaining what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And he's told, he tells the people that he's speaking to that God said to him, arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things that are appointed for you to do. In other words, Saul at the time is told, you're going to become my servant, Paul, and you're going to have a job, and that job has already been planned. It's not that you have to just simply head on into the rest of your life, Saul, and do whatever you think is fitting. There's a plan, there's a purpose. I've got a job for you to do, the Lord Jesus Christ says. All things have been appointed. Same word. Same word. Look again what our text says. Our text declares, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. They have been appointed. There is a purpose. There is a plan. And that plan is that they would be brought to eternal life. Eternal life is a synonym for salvation and everything that salvation brings to a needy sinner such as you and I. We have eternal life. What does that mean? It means that we are saved. It means that we are redeemed. It means that we have been cleansed. It means that we have been justified. It means that our sins have been forgiven, that we have peace with God. And that as those who have peace with him, we have been brought into his family and we've been adopted. So when we read of eternal life, it it should be understood as everything that pertains to the gift that God gives us in Christ Jesus. Everything that we enjoy in time and everything that we will enjoy for eternity. We will never again be condemned. We will never again be pronounced guilty. We'll never again be excluded from the filial affection of the triune God. We have everlasting, eternal life. We don't just exist forever, but incessantly we will enjoy the fullness of life that we have been designed to know and that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. As many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. To believe is simply to embrace the offer and the promises of the gospel. To believe is to grab hold of the fact that Jesus died for my sins. To believe is simply to rest in that truth. Theologians define faith in a threefold way. They use Latin words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. And it's helpful. Notitia is the content of the truth of the gospel. God gave his son So that those who believe in Jesus Christ's death on their behalf have their sins forgiven. The content of the gospel. 
A census is to recognize that it's more than just a historical fact. It's true. I don't just know that once upon a time God gave his son, but I know that if I trust in him, I will be saved. I know it's true. I embrace it as true. I accept it as true. And fiducia is when the soul says that historical fact that I know is true, I lean on, I rest in that, I trust in that, I make it mine. Faith. A historical reality that is true, that we trust, that we rest in, that we embrace. Now that's the meaning of the words. And having looked at the words, we then must ask, well, when they're all put together, what do they really mean? What is the text seeking to say? What is this behind-the-scenes expose that Luke is giving us all about? I think it should be plain and obvious in a nutshell. This text of scripture is saying that the reason that these particular people trusted Christ on this particular day is because God planned that that would happen. God appointed that it would happen exactly at that moment in the way that it happened to who he had planned it would happen to. Now I used a word a moment ago that sums the whole thing up. I said that God decreed the events and indeed every element of the events that took place in Antioch, Poseidon. He decreed every activity of the hearts and minds of the souls of those who believed. Now you and I don't decree. You don't decree. You might Think at times you're a little bit of a dictator and a ruler in your own little bubble that you live in, but you're, you're really not. You're, you're still a little worm, and you don't decree. You can't decree. You might wish. You might want. You might hope. You might plan. You might dream. But you don't decree. God decrees. God doesn't wish. God doesn't dream. God doesn't hope. He doesn't know what it is to dream. We hear some of these TBN guys talking about God's got a dream for you and things like that. The biggest lot of nonsense you've ever heard. God doesn't dream. God decrees. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And he announced it in eternity past. And it is so. He decrees. Now, you can make God like yourself if you want, but I am not going to join you in your fantasy of the divine. The fact is, God decrees. I don't know if it's still as popular, but I remember a while ago, loads of guys talking about fantasy football. And, you know, all, all the best to them, but I could never get myself into fantasy football. I just need to know what happened in reality and who scored and who didn't score and who won and who didn't win and who's top of the, the, the league. And when I'm thinking of football, of course, I'm thinking of soccer. <laughs> That's going on in my head. You're thinking of throw ball. I'm thinking of football. <laughs> I've probably lost half of your consciences already just by saying that. But this fantasy football idea is great for those that want it. What do they do? They pick a team, the team they want. 
And then they'll drop guys they don't want. I don't fancy him anymore. I'll just drop him. Oh, I think I'll bring this guy in out of nowhere and give him a chance. And it's all fantasy stuff. And sometimes they do well and sometimes they don't. That's all good, but don't do that with theology. And yet some people play fantasy theology. They, they, they think, well, I don't really like that particular aspect of what the Bible reveals about God. I think I'll minimize it or even throw it out altogether. And the God that I want to believe in is like this. Friend, God is who he is. And he's the God who decrees. All his preordained plans are enacted every millisecond of every day, in every place of the earth, in every region of the universe. And even on this earth, he is pleased every day to use men and women in trillions of ways as agents to accomplish his decree. Every day he does so without ever violating their wills or robbing them of their ordained freedom that they have been created with. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's beyond our comprehension. God has planned all things and men and women are instruments in exacting and executing his decree. And yet as they do so, they act according to their nature. So when a whole crowd of pagan Gentiles, most of whom have never heard the gospel, hear it in Antioch of Poseidia, and they believe in it, and they rejoice in the Savior that is presented in that good news, what is going on? Here's what's going on. The decree of God, the plan of God, the appointment that God made for them to come to Christ in eternity past is being realized. God's decree is being worked out, fleshed out right there, right then. Those whose wills had always acted according to their own nature. And as such, they have been living in sin. They have been freely and happily often living in rebellion against God. On this day of their appointment, something happens in their heart. Something happens in their will. And they are enabled by the grace of God to freely now choose Christ. What has happened? They've been given life. They have been regenerated. And as a, as a result of new life being given to their old dead souls, they are now able to look to Jesus and believe. And as they do that, they are accomplishing something that God has decreed from eternity past would happen. They were appointed. They were elected. They were chosen. And now as regenerate individuals, they do have the discernment to believe. Now as regenerate individuals, they do have the disposition to believe. Now as regenerate individuals, there is more than just a little tiny spark of spiritual life in their heart. There's a, a full flame of Holy Spirit induced spiritual life in their souls. Now as regenerate individuals, they look at their lives and they say, what a waste of time. What a, what a waste of a life. What an empty life I've been living without Christ. You see, now they're regenerated, they're alive. And they're able to see for the first time the goodness, the grace, the kindness of God in Christ Jesus. And they flee to him. And it's all because... Once upon a time, God appointed that this should happen. 
Let me just further then explain the important theological truth that this verse is unfolding. It's the the truth that is called in many places in Scripture, predestination. That's a word that fits this text of Scripture. The word predestinated is in itself a very interesting word. Its etymology lies in the idea of marking out a goal. For example, in a 100 meter race, you've got the starting blocks and you've got the finishing line. And before the race begins, the runners know it has been preset. It has been predetermined, pre-agreed on, pre-declared that this is 100 meters. You'll start here and you'll finish there. Now, one of those runners might be really fast at the beginning. And he might look around at 25 meters and realize he's in front. And he might be tempted to just throw his hands in the air and say, look, I've won. As everybody else goes whizzing by him. And he hasn't won. Because the goal, the point, the objective is out there at an agreed on place. To be predestinated, it speaks of a a moment in time that would come in the purpose of God when something would occur. And in the case and in the context that we're speaking of, that something is that these souls would come to Christ. It's not going to come before and it's not going to come after. The predetermined moment, the point in history that God has set for these individuals. The use of the word throughout the New Testament with regard to our salvation is to show us the love of God and in particular his love's deliberateness, his love's purposefulness. His love is as he is, eternal and unchanging and certain. And predestination is a doctrine presented in Scripture that demonstrates that he graciously has determined in ages past, before we were even in existence, to have us, to make us his own, to love us. Predestination is based on his four loving heart not in anything meritorious or valuable in ourselves but in his free sovereign grace now the fact is this is a controversial doctrine I don't think in this church but generally in evangelicalism And certainly in the world, it's a very controversial doctrine. But it's not controversial due to it being a marginal teaching in Scripture that is unclear or uncertain. That is worded in a way that could be understood in so many different ways in a legitimate sense. It's not controversial because it's grey in the Bible. It's controversial Simply because men don't like the idea. It's controversial because philosophically it doesn't fit in with the great desire that we have as human beings in our fallen state to be our own gods. To be the masters of our own destiny. 
to be in charge. The thought that in any way God has made decisions that are irresistible and certain that affect us. Well, people will say, well, that makes me a robot. And boy, if men are called robots, there's nothing that gets them madder. When I go into Starbucks and say my name's Robert because I've got a Scottish accent, I've often been shouted, robot. And that makes me mad too, I've got to be honest. But the human heart doesn't want in any way to feel that he is under any divine obligation. But you know, man is not a robot. That is not what this passage or this doctrine in any way suggests. Listen, every single day, everyone makes thousands of choices, free choices, choices that suit them, choices that are according to their preference, choices that are according to their own nature. They are free to choose and to please themselves in any way that suits them. But they cannot make choices that are contrary to their nature. Nothing can. When a dog communicates, he might realize that you're a cat lover and not a dog lover. And as much as he might want to try, he can't meow. He's got to bark. He can't change who he is. And he can bark as freely and as loudly and as often as he chooses and as he wants, according to his nature. The dog can't moo. The dog can't twitter. The dog can only bark. It acts according to its nature and humanity in its fallen state loves itself. Humanity in its fallen state sure naturally wants to serve itself, wants to please itself, wants to glorify itself, wants to honor itself. Humanity in its natural fallen state, however, cannot love God. It is contrary to its nature. Therefore, humanity requires a decision by God and an action by God to bring men to a place where his nature is changed so that he can then want God, love God, trust God, believe God. As I said, there are scores of places in the New Testament throughout the Bible where the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul and the teaching of Peter and others shows plainly that God has loved his people with an everlasting, predestinating love. For example, in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, he chose us in him, that is in Christ. When? When we felt disposed and God said, oh yeah, I'll have you then if you'll have me. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And he predestinated us to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, we are bound to give thanks for you, Paul says, to this young church. Brethren, beloved of the Lord, because 
God chose you from the beginning to be saved. When I read in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul saying that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. I'm reading another passage of scripture that verifies in clear black and white terms, not in gray, fuzzy, uh, indiscernible uh, concepts, but in plain terms, the doctrine of predestination. Yes, it's controversial. I do agree. Someone might be sitting in the meeting this morning thinking, I didn't know I was coming to hear a controversial sermon. It's only controversial because it doesn't fit our own narrative, our own desires. It's not controversial because the Bible is unclear. That God would love sinners so much that he made a plan, a definite plan to save them. Boy, it's, it's not controversial really, is it? It's, it's glorious. It's comforting. It's stirring. It's moving. Why would he do that? Here's why. Because he wants to be gracious. But in closing, I want to point out some, or deal with some objections. There are so many that are raised, we're not going to get to them all, but some would hear this and say, well, Okay, if that is so, then there's no point praying. Why would I even bother praying? After all, God will do what God will do. But I would assert that this truth should actually encourage us to pray. You see, when we pray, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Didn't he? What is it we have to pray for? We have to pray, Lord, your kingdom. The kingdom that you have decreed should come to pass. Let that kingdom be realized. Let that kingdom be seen. Let that kingdom be felt. Let that kingdom be smelt. Let that kingdom be very real, tangible, visible before us. Let us even see it grow around us. Your kingdom come and your will. Your will that is an eternal will. Your will that is a glorious will. Your will that includes the growing of your kingdom. Let it be done here around us on earth. Where we're walking, where we're living, where we're breathing. Let it be done, Lord, just as it is in heaven. Where your will is executed perfectly and righteously and meticulously. Let it be that your will for your kingdom is accomplished here and now. That we will see it. That we'll be part of it. That will be included in its growth. So where on earth? Where on earth does the idea. Well if God has ordained the salvation of all men. Who will be saved. If he's predestinated it. Then we can just fold our arms. Put our feet up and go to sleep. 
Where do we get that from? From our own carnal, foolish imagination and argumentative spirit. That's where we get it from. Not from the word of God, from the the truth that Christ would instill within our heart. Who says, look, when you pray, pray for God's kingdom to come and the will that he has to be done. What is his will? His will is that his people will be brought in, that the elect will be gathered together before that great and glorious day when Jesus Christ will come. Another argument that I've heard and had to deal with pastorally on several occasions is generally from mums, sometimes from dads, but mostly from tender-hearted mums. Where they would say, but pastor, if that is true, my kids might not be predestinated. And there's no hope for them. And they genuinely feel concern and fear. I have to say, usually it's from moms whose kids are very young. And they haven't maybe quite realized how... It is to be the parent of a very corrupt teenager and a very wayward 20-somethinger. And the mum looks at the sweet wee baby and thinks, oh, he's so beautiful. Oh, she's so amazing. Oh, what if he's not predestinated? What if I can't change this little heart? What can change the diaper? I can change the mood by making sure this little one's fed. I can can help this little one to grow. And oh, some moms want to be the Holy Spirit too, you see. And they think that they've got the power to grip the conscience. Now, to some degree as parents you do. When they're young, you have the power to grip the conscience. You have the power to bind the little conscience and shape and mold it. But let me tell you. There's coming a day you're going to go, whoa, whoa, where did you hear that? I never told you that. I don't believe that. How come you think that way? And you're in for a shock. You're in for a shock. And it's at that day you'll realize, oh, actually it's better that it's God that saves. It's God that works rather than me. It's actually safer that it's the, the, the Holy Spirit who does the work of the eternal counsel of God rather than me doing that work. Dear mom, I know you love your kids, but don't imagine you love your kids more than God can love them. Don't think they're safer with you and your persuasiveness. Listen, you're not such a good Christian that your kids are going to grow up and say, well, I'm saved because my mom's perfect and I saw in her perfection. Or I saw in my dad absolute immaculate holiness. And I was brought under conviction because of that. And apart from God's eternal purpose and and, and saving work, None of us are good enough to wow our kids to Jesus. We need the grace of God. And remember, grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. 
So rather than be panicking, realize, oh, I'm glad it's a case that God's eternal love is sure. And, and, and take it as hopeful that God has given to you these little ones. Someone who knows the gospel. Who daily communicates the gospel. Who with all your faults wants to live the gospel. Consider that, well, since God uses means, I, I should be hopeful. I should at least have some optimism that he's brought this little one or these little ones into my life so that they can be under the sound of the word of God in order that they may be saved. Have hope. Not presumption, not cockiness, but hope. But hope not in yourself, not in your skill, not in the books that you've read about raising a child and so on. Have hope in the grace of God. Because God is gracious. How gracious? So gracious that from before the foundation of the world, he ordained to save sinners. That's how gracious he is. Another argument that we hear is, well, predestination kills evangelism. If, if God has ordained the salvation of the lost... And those who will be brought to Christ have already been determined. Then we can just sit back and not evangelize. Because predestination will kill it. Well, you try telling that to John Eliot, the 17th century missionary to the American Indians. Likely the first missionary among the Native American tribes ever. He believed in predestination because the Bible told him so. Try telling that to David Brainerd who came after him again to the American Indians. Try telling it to William Carey, the father of, of modern missions, who, who was the famous missionary to India, who went there in precarious circumstances. Tell it to Robert Moffat, the first missionary to reach the interior of Africa with the gospel. Tell it to David Livingston, who wasn't, as he's promoted today, first an explorer. He was first a missionary, driven by a desire to tell the lost about Jesus who believed in predestination try telling that to Robert Morrison the, the first Protestant missionary to China and the first to translate the Bible into Chinese tell it to John Payton and see what happens as he went off driven by a desire for the glory of God in the salvation of souls as a man who believed in predestination to the outer Hebrides and, and who lived among the cannibals and who had to sleep on his wife's grave to stop them coming and digging her up and eating her tell him oh your doctrine kills this desire for evangelism. See what he says. Tell it to Adoniram Judson, the first real missionary to go from these shores to foreign shores. Try telling it to Charles Simeon, who founded the Church Missionary Society, and to Henry Martin, the renowned missionary to India and Persia, as he preached in the face of violent opposition, and as he translated the New Testament into various languages. Or oh, your doctrine of predestination kills evangelism. Come on. Did you even know that John Calvin sent out a couple of dozen missionaries to Brazil in 1556? Think of what that would have entailed in 1556. And they arrived in Brazil and several were murdered and it was a difficult and rather unsuccessful missionary enterprise other than it opened up the door for more missionaries to come thereafter. 
The fact is to know that God has ordained, that God has predetermined the salvation of his people actually encourages evangelism because we go out knowing that we are the appointed tools in the sovereign fisherman's hand by which he has ordained to draw his people into himself. We can speak faithfully of God and not get embarrassed by his attributes. We we, we don't have to dim down or tone down the message of the Bible because we realize it's not our skill, it's not our craftiness, it's not our tact that will bring people in. It's God's grace. So we can be honest about him. Another consequence is that we have certain assurance that salvation is all of grace, then really bad, really ignorant, really foolish, and really terrible people will be brought to Christ. Gives us a boldness. Others would say, well, this doctrine makes God scary. Big and scary. I would say, well, if predestination in your mind makes God big and scary, you know what to do? Get on your face and worship him then. Stop arguing with him. Stop resisting him. What kind of pathetic God do you actually want? Do you want a God who waits to see what you're going to do and then pretends that he's the one who planned it all the time so he doesn't lose face? I would be embarrassed with that God. Imagine having the God of open theism, the God of Clark Pinnock, the kind of God who has to hang back to see what really is going to happen. And then because he sees what really is going to happen, he acts as if that's what he really wants. The kind of God whose will is always what man's will was, but after man has willed it first. If you went on holiday with that God, you'd get frustrated after the first day. You'd say, what do you want to do? And he would say, what do you want to do? I'll do what you want to do. No, you decide and then I'll do what you want to do. And you'd do nothing. Right? You been on a holiday like that? Now you might be thinking, are you mocking God? I'm not mocking God. I'm mocking Clark Pinnock's God, who is not the God of the Bible. He's not. The God of the Bible decrees, remember? In eternity past, he had a plan, and that plan is beautiful. That plan is lovely. That plan is, is, is exquisite. That plan is masterful. That plan has not, will not, doesn't need to be changed. It's good. Because he's wise and he knows all things. And he's, he, he's, he's included all contingencies in his decree. And there's nothing can come in and thwart him. Because he's God. Listen, that doesn't make God big and scary. Come on. What makes God big and scary is his holiness. Oh, that makes God big and scary. His wrath against sin. That makes God big and scary. I'm not saying God's not big and scary, but this doctrine of predestination 
It's not one of the doctrines, not one of the truths that makes him big and scary. It, it shows us a gracious God, a loving God, a God who, as we said earlier, has purpose, a purpose to love the unlovable, the unlikable. Because, because he wants to. Because he chooses to. Not because he looks at us in our unloveliness and says, okay, I'll find something to love about you. Because there's nothing. He's already figured that out in eternity past. And nevertheless, he says, but I'll love you anyway. And I'll give my son to die for you. And I'll bring you to myself through the merits of my son being imputed to you. What a great God. Listen to how important Martin Luther saw a proper understanding of this doctrine when it comes to worship. He says this, it is not irreligious, idle, or superfluous, but in the highest degree wholesome and necessary for a Christian to know whether or not his will has anything to do in matters pertaining to salvation. For if I am ignorant of the nature, extent, and limits of what I can and must do with reference to God, I shall be equally ignorant and uncertain of the nature, extent, and limits of what God can and will do in me, though God, in fact, works all in all. Now, if I'm ignorant of God's works and power, I am ignorant of God himself. And if I do not know God, I cannot worship, I cannot praise, I cannot give thanks or serve, for I do not know him. We need, therefore, to have in mind a clear-cut distinction between God's power and ours, God's work and ours, if we would live a godly life. There's more, but Luther is saying, look, this is a doctrine that will enable you to worship the way you should be worshiping and live the way you should live. There is power in knowing that God has ordained my salvation and he's given me a purpose and the purpose that he has set from eternity is that I would bring glory and honor and majesty to his name. There's a reason for me breathing. There's a reason, Christian, for you being alive today. And you can understand that reason more when you put God where he really is, where you see God where he really is. On that day, Luke says, many were brought to Christ because they had been appointed to eternal life. What a great statement that gives us insight into places that otherwise we would not dare to tread. But praise God, we see his love and his grace and his goodness is the source of the blessing that's being outworked. May the Lord encourage our hearts and enable us to know him, love him, submit to him, and enjoy him as he reveals himself in Holy Scripture. Amen.